Good morning, everyone. I'm Bob Payne. I'm one of the retired priests that worships here when I can. And um, it's an enormous privilege to come and worship at this church. It really is. Um, my wife is sadly not here, but she says whenever I preach, I must always smile. So... There we go. You've got your smile. Then if she comes back, you can say. Um, this is a special Sunday, as we've just celebrated. But in the Catholic Church, for centuries, it's been a special Sunday as well. And this is called, in the Catholic Church, Laetare Sunday, which means Rejoicing Sunday. The fourth Sunday of Lent is Rejoicing Sunday. So you can see why Mothering Sunday has been tagged on to this particular Sunday. Uh, so we rejoice uh, over motherhood and, and so on. That's been tagged on. But why does the Catholic Church uh, have the fourth Sunday of Lent as a Rejoicing Sunday? Well, it's because... For these four weeks, we've been coming up and looking at ourselves with sackcloth and, and ashes. And now, we start turning to face Easter and Jesus' trip to Jerusalem and what he did on the cross and what he accomplished through his resurrection and ascension. So it's a significant Sunday in Lent as we turn and now focus on the cross and on Jesus' accomplishment thereon. But I want to begin by telling you a story which I think is a true story and it's about a lady who was going on a flight um, she went to an airport and she was sitting in the airport lounge <clears throat> and she went and bought a packet of biscuits and sat down to read her newspaper. Uh, after a short time, she suddenly heard a rustling sound and looked up to see the man sitting next to her was actually helping himself to the biscuits. And not wanting to make a scene, she leaned over and took one herself as well, hoping above hope that he would get the message that it was her packet. Shortly after that, she heard another rustling sound and he was helping himself to another biscuit. And then she looked, and there was only one left. And lo and behold, not only that, the man took the last biscuit, broke it in half, gave her half, and ate the other half himself. And she was absolutely furious as he walked off, thinking nothing of it. But she was fuming inside, and she sat there really angry. And then, of course, her flight was called, and she had to go to the gate. And she was really, really fed up that this man could actually just 
rob her of her biscuits and just assume he could do that. Imagine how angry she felt. And imagine too how she felt when she had to present her ticket at the gate. And she opened her handbag and there were the unopened packet of biscuits. <laughs> now in that story, did you assume that the man had taken the biscuits? How many of you did? Quite a few, yes. I did when I first read that story. And you know, too often we're guilty of making assumptions about people, about circumstances, and, and so on. And once we make those assumptions, it's hard to think outside of the box. It's almost as if the assumptions become like a barrier to us seeing reality. And uh, we must never, never make assumptions, particularly about people, about their background, profession, race, gender, age, nationality, politics, faith, or indeed any other factors at all. Because once we do, we stop paying attention to real detail. We make too many assumptions, and that's what happens in life. I'm sure I've, I've committed that. I'm sure you have too. But it's a big lesson. And you know, we can actually uh, learn it from even the Bible too. We can make assumptions about the Bible. How many people were here last week? Put your hands up, nice and high, so I can see. Now, those who were at the last service are ruled out. But there's a nice bar of chocolate. If somebody who was here last week can remember what the verse was that Phil started the service with, Not the passage of the sermon that he preached, or whatever, Catherine preached, wasn't it? But what was the verse? Anyone remember? Or am I going to, come on. No. They pre he preached, or it was preached, John. No. It was all related, I'll give you a clue, to the weather of the previous week. Ah! You, you, can, you can share that with the home group on Tuesday. <laughs> I won't be there, but you can do that. <laughs> Yes, it was this verse from Isaiah 55, um, verse 10 and 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. 
It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. As the rain and the snow come down, so is my word. And we make assumptions, don't we, in our minds. Okay, as his word. Usually we take this as God's word. But if you think for a minute about the rain and the snow falling, yes, it goes into rivers, into lakes, but it also goes into wells. It also goes into fruit. So if you cut a peach, there's rain in it. It also goes into a cactus in the middle of a desert. You know, so actually, very often our assumptions limit our understanding. And that's true of the Bible as well, because, you know, the Word of God created the heavens and the earth. So even through creation, God's Word can speak. The Word became flesh. And so the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus speak to us. And indeed, as we shall see today, when we're talking about the promise of the Spirit, we receive the Word and the Word dwells within us. And therefore, the Word can speak through us and indeed through others to us as well. And so if we're not careful, even with God's Word and so on, we can make assumptions which limit our perspective of his love and what he's accomplished on the cross. And uh, I just want to open up the passage in the light of all of that that was selected for today. And it's John's Gospel and it's chapter 14, beginning at verse 15. And if we could have that on the board. This is the passage. And it's a passage where Jesus is preparing his disciples um, for his leaving. Bear that in mind. All of these chapters, 14, 15, 16, 17, are all concerned with getting his disciples ready to face what's going to happen when he leaves them, when he dies, when he rises again from the dead. And this is what he says. <clears throat> If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? 
And Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own words. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I've spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father, and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Now, in that passage, we have the promise of the Spirit. And it's crucial that we do not make assumptions about the work of the Spirit. And so often we do, and I want to give you a few clues to that. But here, in preparing the disciples to go, or to be bereft of Jesus, and he's preparing them here for that moment. He says, basically, I'm going to send someone else, the counselor. Now, the word he uses there, counselor, is parakletos in the Greek which means um, outside of the New Testament scene, advocate, someone who makes a case in a court. But in John's Gospel, it's a different meaning entirely. It means, as we've had here, someone who is a counselor, someone who is uh, to come alongside to comfort, to encourage, to entreat, to exhort, someone of a similar kind. In other words, someone who is like Jesus, someone is, is the breath of Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus had um, met them again, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That was what he was talking about there. And they had to go and wait until Pentecost for it to happen. But his breath came, life breath of Christ. And another one of the same kind as Christ is going to come, called the Holy Spirit. And that's something that we need to grasp here. 
and many of the translators uh, use all sorts of words. They use counselor, as my Bible version does, the, the good news, helper, the AV, comforter, uh, the NEB, advocate, all of those mean the same thing. One who comes alongside, Jesus says, but also one who will be in you, dwell within you. And so when we become Christians, we know through faith that we receive the Holy Spirit. That's Galatians chapter 3. We receive the Spirit by faith. And he comes and dwells within us. I think we forget that when we go about this world, that we have the very presence of God, the life breath of Christ, in us. Out there in the world, and not just within the church. And we need to hold on to that and live our lives in that sort of expectation that we go with the presence of God, whether it's to Sainsbury's supermarket or whatever. You take the presence of God with you. And if you go to Exodus 33, the presence of God is so important to Moses. Do you remember this passage? My presence will go with you, says the Lord, and I will give you rest. He says that to Moses in Exodus 33. And then Moses said to him, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you do go with us? This is it. What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth. The very fact that when we become Christians, we receive the Spirit supernaturally within us as one who comes alongside to be with us, but in us as well. And his presence will make us um, distinct in the world. I don't know if you ever think of yourself as a Christian in that way. But we have the presence of God and that will distinguish us from every other people in the world. We are called for a mission. And as we'll see, the Spirit is not just for us. It's actually to reveal Jesus to the rest of this needy world. But that's what um, Jesus, uh, Jesus is preparing the disciples for. And if we were to go through this, he talks about, first of all, that it imparts power for service. Uh, the few verses beforehand, he says, um, I'm going to enable you to do greater things than I did. Does that mean greater miracles? No, it doesn't, actually. You see, Jesus was limited. God was limited in coming to be flesh. He limited himself to be in one place at one moment, at one time, there. 
That was his restriction. And that's why he says to the disciples, I've got to go back. I've got to go back to my father, and he's going to send another counselor, the Holy Spirit, to come so that my presence will be everywhere at all time. Can you see that? And therefore, the disciples will do greater things than Jesus because the, the, the whole gospel will spread across the world because the Spirit will be able to go across the world and won't be limited. And so the first thing he says to them, it's power for service. The second is it will enable the, the disciples to feel at home. They won't feel bereft as orphans. I will make their, my home with them. You know, you're not going to be left as orphans. I'm going to be with you. And then also helping them in their obedience and their love of the Lord. And something else that he will teach them. All truth, the spirit of truth. He will reveal the truth of Jesus to them. And also he will give them that deep peace, he says here. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give it to you as the world gives. It's not worldly peace. This is a supernatural peace because you love me and obey me. You will have a supernatural peace that even when you're suffering, you will still have the peace of God. Can you see that? So he was preparing them for all of that. And the wonderful thing is, that's available for you and for me as well, which is wonderful. As we become Christians, our status is changed because through faith we receive the Spirit, we become children of God, Romans 8, and not only uh, children of God, but joint heirs with Christ. In other words, inheriting all that Jesus inherited, including eternal life. That's a huge promise. And many other sermons can be preached on that. But that's what Jesus is preparing them for. Now, the big trouble with us is that we think that once we become Christians, we receive the Spirit, and that's it. You know, I'm a Christian, I have faith in Jesus. I receive his Holy Spirit. Got it. But it's so much more than that. And the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was minister of Westminster Central Hall for many years, written an amazing number of books, tackled this assumption in Christians. So he says this, So we all say to ourselves, Oh, well, I'm baptized with the Spirit through faith. It happened when I was born again. It happened at my conversion. There's nothing for me, nothing more for me to seek. I've got it all. And then he says, got it all? Well, if you've got it all, I simply ask in the name of God, why are you like you are? If you've got it all, why are you so unlike the New Testament Christians? 
got it all, got it all at your conversion? Well, where is it, I ask? That's a big challenge, isn't it? A big challenge. And I think we, we make so many assumptions in our lives that actually um, it restricts how we operate as spirit-filled Christians in the world. Our assumptions do that. And our assumptions quench the spirit. St. Paul carries this teaching on through his epistles. And he says there are four responses when you have the, the spirit within you. And one of them is to quench the spirit. And we can quench the spirit by our assumptions, you know? We assume we've got it all, for instance. Or we can quench the spirit through ignorance. Or we can quench the spirit through fear. Praise God for courses like the Alpha Course and other things like that that are actually getting away of dispelling in ignorance. But we can assume that once we've got the Spirit, that's it. And it's only the beginning because we can quench the Spirit so easily. The second thing is we can grieve the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4. Don't grieve the Spirit. We grieve the Spirit by our sin. And if you look at Paul's teaching quickly in Ephesians, I've got a bit more time this second service, haven't I? So I can roam a bit. <laughs> Ephesians 4. Just listen to the context where this is in. Do not let un any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Paul is famous for these great lists of things, and he puts grieving the Spirit in the middle of one of those lists, Rage, anger, bitter, you know, he lists them all. Any of that hurts the Spirit of God, grieves the Spirit. And so we can quench the Spirit, we can grieve the Spirit. And Acts chapter 7, we can resist the Spirit. Stephen, just before he was being stoned, said, you stiff-necked people. I used to love saying that to my congregation. You stiff-necked people. You're just like your forefathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. It was no wonder he was stoned to death. But we can resist the Spirit, as we'll see later on. We can resist him. We believe God can only work in that way. I'm only accepting God to work that way. I'm not comfortable with any of these other things that go along with this package. You know, I only expect God to work in that way. If you've ever had a stiff neck, 
You can only see in one direction. Your vision is polarized and limited. And that's what resisting the spirit can do as well. And so we can resist, we can grieve, we can quench the spirit, or as we know in Ephesians 5, we can be filled with the spirit. And that's the longing, the longing of God. You see, we forget, we forget what this passage is saying to us. Three times in this passage that we've read this morning, it's about the Counselor, the Holy Spirit coming alongside, dwelling within us, but it's set in a framework of love and obedience. Love and obedience are crucial Jesus says, if you want to have the Spirit uh, alongside you and in you. And verse 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Verse 21, he who loves me will be loved my Father, um, and whoever has my commands and obeys them. And then later on, he talks again about obedience. You see, If we don't love the Lord fully and obey him, then we are going to grieve and resist and quench the spirit. And so we have to keep what I call short accounts with God. I put my foot in it so many times with God and said, Lord, I'm really sorry. I've done it again. Please forgive me. I trust what you've accomplished on the cross for me. Please forgive me. Please fill me afresh with your spirit. Fill me afresh. And Ephesians 5 is the fourth response. Be filled with the spirit. And as you know, it's that present continuous tense. Go on being filled. Go on being filled. Go on being filled. Why does Paul say that? Because we resist, grieve, and quench the Spirit. At least I do. You know? So it's... Paul knew what he was talking about here. And it's in the framework of obedience and love. And love like faith cannot be separated from obedience. It really can't. And you know, we as Christians assume that once we have faith in Jesus and we're confident we're going to go to heaven and inherit eternal life, we assume that's it. And it isn't. It's in the framework of love and obedience to our Heavenly Father. And yes, we have the Holy Spirit. That's the assumption. But the big challenge, I think, for all of us today is Yes, we have the Spirit, but does the Spirit have you? Does the Spirit truly have you? And even if we are filled with the Spirit, even if we are, there's more. We assume, okay, I've confessed, I've asked to be filled afresh, I'm empowered with the gifts of the Spirit, Um, I can look back in my life and see the fruit of the Spirit being developed so I'm not the same person as I was, praise God. He's still got a lot to do in me, but 
you know, I can see his hand on it. And we think that that's it, and it's not. And Paul goes on to develop even more in Galatians chapter 5. He talks about being um, led by the Spirit and also, if I can find it, here we are, um, being led by the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. Even though we're filled with the Spirit, we've still got to be led by the Spirit and we've still got to walk in the Spirit. I don't know if you ever think of your Christian life like this, but this is what Paul teaches. And he says, first of all, we are to be led by the Spirit. We have the Spirit in us and he is to lead us. And that's actually a passive verb that Paul uses. It's like a shepherd leading sheep, a farmer um, doing that with the cows, the wind blowing in the sails of a ship. But it's a passive uh, response. The Spirit is prompting, nudging, encouraging, exhorting, but it's passive. And then Paul says, we are to walk in the Spirit. And that verb is active. That's our response to the leader leading us, the Holy Spirit leading us in life. So the, the Spirit may say to you, you ought to go and visit so-and-so. You know, you have that prompting, that inner, in your inner knower, I often say, you know, gosh, I ought to email somebody, or I ought to phone them, or I ought to go and visit, or I ought to offer to go and get shopping, or I ought to pray for my colleague at work. You know, you get those thoughts. That's very often the leading of the Spirit. And it's not for us just to sit back passively getting that prompting. Paul says there's a response. Walk in the Spirit. And he uses an active word, an active verb. And I love my translation because in it he talks about keeping, he says walk in the Spirit, since we live or walk in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. There's the active side of it for you and I. And several people from the first service came up and said, do you know, I had that um, prompting and I didn't respond. And I knew I should have done. And that is not keeping in step with the Spirit. So yes, we have the indwelling Spirit, the promise that Jesus gave his, to his disciples, is for us as well. We have the Spirit in this. We have the Spirit who comes along in daily life. Yes, we can resist, grieve, and quench the Spirit, but the Lord wants us to uh, be filled with His Spirit. And even when we're filled with His Spirit, He wants us to be led by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. And I think for most of us in our Christian lives, it's that latter part that we 
let God down and let ourselves down. And therefore his presence is not experienced in the world. And I don't believe his presence fully is um, felt and experienced within our churches either. Do you realize that? That if you give yourself, if you give yourself, as we heard last week with Jesus washing the disciples' feet, he gave us an example, not to just do it on a Thursday, Maundy Thursday evening in a service, but as an indication that the way we love others is to serve them, to give. And if you remember nothing else, being a Christian means we're called to serve and give. So many of us live in this consumer world where we're tainted, where we come to church even to get my needs met. And that isn't what being a Christian is about. That isn't what being a spirit-filled Christian is about. It's being equipped with the spirit. So we are led by the Spirit and we keep in step with the Spirit and we reveal Jesus and his love to the world. And even within our Christian family, as we learn to serve one another, give to one another, love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Do you know that? In 1 John chapter 4, and I finish with this, in 1 John chapter 4, it speaks of loving one another. And I haven't planned on doing this, so I haven't got the Bible verses. Here we go. In 1 John chapter 4, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, because we have his spirit, and his love is made complete in us. Did you realize that? That as you love and care for each other, God's love is made complete. And he says it not once, but twice. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us. And if we got that right, we wouldn't have to send missionaries out to the world at all. And the New Testament Christians uh, didn't have to because the world was looking at the New Testament Christians and said one thing, and some of the early fathers recorded it over and over again. See how these Christians love one another. That was the impact they made on the world. Why? Because God's love was being made complete among them. So I finish with that and with a reminder of that challenge that I gave you. We all, as Christians, have the Holy Spirit. But how much, how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? And likewise, even if you feel right with God, are you keeping in step with him on a daily basis? So when he leads and prompts and encourages, you actually respond.
That's all wrapped up in the passage of 1 John uh, chapter 4 as much as it is in John's Gospel chapter 14. I'd like us to be quiet and just reflect on our own lives for a minute. There may be times where we feel we've resisted, quenched, or grieved the Spirit, and we may want to simply put that right. It may be that you can reflect on your life and realize that you've been led by the Spirit, but you've not responded, and you've missed opportunities. So we'll just be still and quiet for a few minutes. And then I shall ask Dan to put on a confession up on the screen before we receive communion. So let's just ask the Spirit to come and do that in us for a moment.